Right, with no further ado, it's my privilege to welcome our dear friend, all the way from Cambridge, somebody who needs little announcement, but a fantastic preacher and somebody who cares deeply for us as a church family, Daniel Goodman. Thanks so much. Uh, What a joy. What a joy to be with you. And to have kids in the service, fantastic. absolutely love it. Um, We've been doing in-person services in the evening, and so mainly adults have been coming. So it's been just great to get out and see the kids and to hear you guys contributing as well. Um, Really, really brilliant. Really, really, really brilliant. The first time I spoke after lockdown, I was a bit sort of high. (laughs) I was just like, oh, wow, people. Um, But it's just really good to be together with other brothers and sisters. Um, One of the uh, definitions of a Christian that I find in the Bible that I really love is from uh, Romans 7, and it talks about, in my inmost being, I delight in your law. And those of us who love the word of God know God. So I'm going to just pray now that God would show us wonderful things in his law. That's what David prayed. Show me wonderful things in your law. So let's pray together. Fathers, we come to look at 2 Kings chapter 3. I pray that you would show us wonderful things in your law, that we would delight in your revelation through your word today. Amen. Great. I want to ask a question before we get too much further. How are love and obedience related? What has love and obedience got to do with each other? I think there's a misconception amongst some believers that the grace of God means that we can do whatever we want. And I think that's a misunderstanding of the proposition. Grace, the grace of God, the free gift of God, is not opposed to to effort or obedience, but is opposed to earning. Okay? Earning, there's no place for earning in grace. But there is a place for effort. Those things are different. Does that make sense? So... Let's, let's try and forget the idea that obedience to God is kind of an Old Testament concept. If you have got your Bible in front of you, just turn to John 14, 21 for a second. Jesus himself says this, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. So Jesus himself links love and obedience and says, if you have my commandments and you obey them, you do that because you love me. That is Jesus himself speaking. So we're going to look at a chapter in the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 3 today. And I want you to be thinking about the place of love and the place of obedience in this story So let me just set up the history very, very quickly, okay? So in the Old Testament, you've got the people of God and they get brought out of Egypt into the promised land and God gives them the law. And the idea is that they shouldn't need a king. They have the law of God. God is their king. 
So they're to need no kings. God gives them the law. And in order to administer the law, God gives them judges. So you have the book of Judges, okay? No kings. Judges don't make the laws, they just apply the laws. But the people of God got sick and tired of these judges and they saw the nations around them had kings and so they, specifically with Samuel's two sons who they didn't like, they cried out and said, please give us a king. So against God's will, they get kings. So just think of the books of the Bible, Judges, Samuel, kings. Our story takes place when there are kings. When the kings were introduced into Israel, they weren't meant to have any horses. They weren't, have to, they weren't meant to gather military power to themselves. So that's why David, King David, went on a mule, not on a horse. Why Jesus entered Jerusalem on a mule, not on a horse. These kings were not meant to be military powerhouses. They weren't meant to be strong, but they began to do that. They began to act like the kings around them. And that led to the people of Israel being divided. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Think of the word vision and division. There was division not a unity of vision, but a division of vision in Israel, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And basically the northern kingdom was quite godless and the southern kingdom was very slightly less godless. You've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south. That's the context into which this comes, okay? So everything that happens from now on in the story comes on a long history of being disobedient to God. It's not like it starts with them sort of in the heart of God's will. No, this is a terrible situation. The, the country is divided, the nation is divided. And so, 2 Kings chapter 3 begins with Joram, the king of the northern kingdom. And his parents had just died, he had become king. And Moab, which was an enemy country, do you remember in the book of Ruth? Ruth was a Moabites. She came from Moab. They were enemies. The king of Moab was supposed to be paying tribute to Joram. But he decided, ah, now that the parents are dead, I'm going to take my chances and I'm going to stop paying my tribute. Let's see what happens. Well, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, decides he's not going to be pushed around by the king of Moab. So he goes, surprisingly, he goes down to the southern kingdom, to the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and says, come with me, let's pretend that we're pals, and we will go to Moab and see what we can do. And Jehoshaphat said, okay, let's go down underneath the Red Sea, through the desert of Edom and pick up the king of Edom, who's one of my kind of vassals, and there'll be three kings versus one king. And we will make him pay you tribute. So they go down through the desert, seven days, three armies, three kings, and then crisis strikes. They run out of water 
in the middle of a desert with three armies. At this point, they decide to talk to God. Now, that strikes me as being really sad that they hadn't done that before. But I've had this experience. The other day, I was talking to a good friend of mine, and I was saying, I'm really tired. I'm absolutely worn out. And he said to me, yeah, you know, and you've taken all your holiday? Um, no, I haven't taken all my holiday. Oh, so you don't trust God. That's literally how he said it. You haven't taken all your holiday because you don't trust God. Because God tells us to rest one day a week, doesn't he? And I wasn't resting because God's work is, needs doing. And my friend said, not resting is not trusting God. And I realized that in that part of my life, I hadn't even talked to God about it. These guys get themselves in the desert in a fix, and that's when they think, I'm gonna talk to God. So they ask, is there a prophet? And they remember Elijah, or Elisha, or as some people call him, Elisha. Okay, let's put your hands up. Would you rather I said Elisha or Elisha? Okay, <laughs> this one, Eli- Elisha. Elisha the prophet. Now he's faced with these three kings and he says to them, no, I'm not gonna prophesy to you, king of the northern kingdom, go back to your own godless prophets. Can you imagine him saying that to a king? Now, Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom, because he's there, he's from the tribe of Judah, in the family of David, and because God made a covenant with David, Elisha says, because of him, I will prophesy to you. But if he wasn't here, I would ignore the rest of you kings, but for his sake, I will prophesy. He tells them to make ditches in the desert. Why would you make ditches in the desert? If you make ditches in the desert, God will fill these with water and you will have victory over Moab. So they take a step of faith and they dig the ditches. It's a bit like Noah building the ark when there's no rain. In fact, Elisha says there will be no rain, there will be no wind. You dig the ditches and they'll be full of water. So as a step of faith, they dig the ditches And the next morning, they are full of water. A miracle has happened. Not only are they full of water so that they can drink, but the enemy sees this ditch system filled with water flowing from the desert. I'm sorry, but that's not normally where water comes from, is it? Flowing from the desert. And the Bible says that from their point of view, Because the sun was shining at a certain angle, they thought it was rivers of blood. And so this this Moabite army think that these three kings have turned on each other, slaughtered each other, and turned the water to blood. And so they attack naively. 
They leave their strongholds. They come out into the desert only to find, no, they haven't slaughtered each other at all. They are in full health, having just drunk from the water. And so they are annihilated. The victory is, is won. But they haven't even reached Moab yet. Now, I forgot to tell you one important piece of information. This king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, Elisha says, I'm only prophesying to you, I'm only helping you because he is here. It says this about, um, about the king, the king of the north actually. He did not turn away from all evil things. He was slightly better than his mum and dad, but he didn't turn away from all evil things. So he was compromised. That's how the chapter begins. He was compromised. Now towards the end of the chapter, that becomes relevant because they've had this victory in the desert and all they need to do is to go into Moab and seize the land. In fact, they've been told to do it. They've been told to take every town. They've been told to throw stones into all the good fields so that they can't be used. And so they go to the capital of Moab. The king, who's there in his stronghold, takes 700 men, tries to overcome them, but God is with them and he can't overcome them. He retreats back to his citadel and the three kings with their three armies surround the city. And then we have this bizarre ending. The king of Moab, desperate for victory, takes his own son, his eldest son, the heir to his throne, and in front of everyone on the city walls, offers him as a living sacrifice to his God. Can you imagine the desperation in a father's heart for him to kill his own son in the face of the fact that he's been defeated in two battles so far and he's completely surrounded? The chapter ends with this strange verse. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. At the beginning of the chapter, Joram, the king of the north, wasn't as evil as his parents, but he didn't turn from all evil ways. And at the end of the chapter, when he should be pressing for total victory, he withdraws, leaving the king of Moab on his throne. We have the Jewish and Christian documents of the Old Testament telling us this history, but the Moabites, have their own history. You can find it in the Louvre. And their record of this war has them victorious. And in a way, that's true. Although the armies of Israel could have wiped them out, they compromised in the face of this horror they didn't press for victory and they turned back. They hadn't actually solved the problem 
at all. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He knows he's facing the cross. All the way through the book of Mark, it says that Jesus told them that he had to face the cross and die. So Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he is going to face the cross and die. And he cries out to God three times. Remember Saint, uh, Paul, I, called him, I nearly called him St. Paul then, I don't know why I did that, but Paul the Apostle in Corinthians, it says that God gave him a thorn in his side and three times he prayed for that thorn to be taken away, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you. That is an echo of this prayer in Gethsemane. Jesus saying, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. We have a king, not like Joram in the Old Testament, but Jesus, the king of kings. We have a king who didn't shrink back from the final horror, but gave himself to it. How do we know that Jesus loves us? because he obeyed God. Love and obedience are an outworking of each other. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane cried out, please take this cup from me, not my will, but your will be done. Here's how Paul talks about it in Philippians. Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, he made himself in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Listen to this, love and obedience. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know that Jesus loves you because he became obedient even to the point of death. You could literally say, Jesus loves me to death. And he conquered sin and death. And by his grace gives us righteousness. He becomes a new and living way for us to have a relationship with the Father. Jesus came to bring us to God. That's what the Bible tells us. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that we would celebrate the fact that you, Jesus, didn't compromise when you were faced with that final horror. Jesus, we thank you that you loved us and we know that you love us because you became obedient to the point of death. Thank you, Jesus, that you showed perfect love and perfect obedience. And Lord, we are resting in your grace. But we know in our heart that we want to believe you and trust you and act 
in obedience to you. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for myself. I pray for the spirit in us that we would choose no compromise. We would choose to obey you from our heart by the spirit that empowers us because we trust you. Not because we're in fear of punishment, but because we trust you. We trust you, maker of heaven and earth, God almighty. We choose to obey you because we trust you. I pray that stories like this from Second Kings would serve as a warning and an encouragement to us that you are always faithful if we trust you. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful saviour that we've been reminded of this morning. Hope you're encouraged, friends. It's been so great to be with you uh, wherever you are. Uh, and uh, those of us here in Fletton, it's been great to see your faces. Thank you so much for being with us. We've, we really look forward to seeing you again. Have a wonderful week. But thank you, everybody, for being with us, and we'll see you soon.